I'm back from my travels. I've spent the last uh, 10 days or so in the States. So I'm back in Blighty, which is very nice because it was very cold where I was. Did you do any scouting? I did not. I actually did not see any sport of any kind. I do try and catch sport and if I can. I mean, I'm abroad a lot and sometimes there's a sport that coincides with that and I, I do go and see it if I can. But there wasn't anything this time. I just had to enjoy minus nine in New York. That was cold. Yeah, that's cold. It's. I mean, I'm sure there are people listening to this in places where that's like, you know, a warm, balmy spring day. Well, I did have someone tweet me. I, I tweeted this out and... Yeah, he sent me his uh, his weather app, which was minus 22, minus 23, minus 24. <laughs> I was like, right, OK. Yeah, minus nine is, I think, feels pretty darn chilly, though, if you're not used to it. Most certainly was. I had good fun in uh, in New York and, and then Washington. I hadn't been to Washington for a good 10 years, so it was, uh, it was nice to go there. David Cameron was in town at the same time as me. Nothing to do with me, I have to say. Um, but uh, we crossed paths a few times because we ended up at the same office on the same day. Did you boo him? I did. I, well, I didn't see him, so no. Okay. Were you there when we swore at Norman Lamont outside the Raj pub in Holland Park in the early 90s? I was not, <laughs> although we did have this conversation a little while ago about uh, that pub being one of our favourites from many years ago. Ah, uh, yes. I would say memories, but that's a strong, strong word. Um, talking of the distant past... I don't think we need to cover the Southampton game, which has been covered in every news outlet all around the world as distinctive, definitive proof that Louis van Gaal is just as bad as David Moyes. Oh, well, yes. I mean, everyone talked about the points total being 37 after 21 games uh, in both seasons. So, yeah, I don't know. Is the world not waiting for us to give the final definitive narrative on that game? No, probably not. Here we go. I can do it if it is. But you can, because I didn't see the game. Normally... If I'm in New York and there's a game on, I head over to Nevada Smiths or, or there was a few more bars, actually. They used to be the only place you could go and they moved into massive premises and then a few other bars popped up as well. So anyway, go and tell, tell us what happened. Manchester United were terrible. So bad. I mean, actually, that is slightly overstating it. And if not for Juan Mata having misplaced his most vital shooting boots, because without them, he hasn't necessarily lit the world on fire. But yeah, apart from Juan Mata missing two ridiculously clear-cut chances, United were were pretty ponderous, struggled to break Southampton down. Southampton defended very deep. And as you pointed out, Koeman said in the press conference afterwards that he knew that United struggled to build playing three at the back we all know that that's it's clearly the case it's it's funny because our defense has come in for so much stick this season but our defense is looking pretty solid conceded less goals than Manchester City now yeah absolutely and and Southampton struggled to create chances of their own and you know United were borderline unlucky but considering the uh, the ridiculous robbery we pulled off when we went to their place it all evens out in the wash doesn't it the big story from that game happened beforehand though with Falcao not even in the uh, 18 a slightly peculiar decision I thought not to have him on the bench it, it wasn't like that space was desperately needed there were a lot of defenders on that bench Van Hull explained it afterwards by saying that uh, he knew he would have to take some players off uh, because they weren't fit, so uh, he only had room for one striker on the bench and he needed some pace, that was his explanation. So how did Di Maria do up front in that game? Because I tell you what, against QPR, he was rubbish, but we'll get onto this in a bit. 
What about against Southampton? I think he was worse, probably. I think he was slightly more effective against QPR. I mean, Gary Lineker was saying it on Match of the Day and he, he mentioned it on Twitter too. And I think it's an extremely apt point. Why take a player who's so dangerous with the ball at his feet and put his back to goal? You said right at the beginning of the season, people are assuming that Di Maria will play in the Robin role in the 3-5-2, but he isn't a good fit for that role because that's uh, not the nature of his game. And that certainly looks to be the case. It was very surprising actually to see him there again it was well yeah against QPR he basically played the number nine I guess uh, slightly deeper against Southampton you know having not seen the game it's hard to pass any comments I was actually wandering around the uh, the 9-11 memorial museum at the time so I thought it was probably inappropriate to try and uh, stream the game you know being the sensitive type and all that so I, I didn't do that I did follow on text though and Twitter and there was a, a lot of people complaining about a lot of things the biggest thing they were complaining about was the three one six two four nine seven four two one formation or whatever it was uh, three at the back and then uh, a load of other players in different positions what do you make of this um, is almost beginning to look like it's stubbornness on Van Hal's part well, since it's a long time ago and you didn't see the game, we could just shift this conversation a week forward in time to the QPR game because that lineup was when it started to look like stubbornness. I think against Southampton at home, it was borderline. You know, a lot was made of the fact that Van Gaal very amusingly said, we only have one player injured, can you believe it, in the press conference beforehand. But th- the truth is... That's actually overstating the case because we only have one player injured, but we have an awful lot of players without match fitness. And I think he was trying to shuffle his pack in a way that made sense. And that kind of 3-5-2 is slightly, has slightly become his default crisis mode formation for the whole of this season. And I think, you know, we're still in crisis mode, if you like, or Van Gaal's still in crisis mode because he's been there a decent amount of time now, but most of that time he hasn't been able to work with most of his players, you know. So anyway, against QPR, there did not seem to be much grounds for playing three at the back because as as was very evident when it was ditched and we looked, what, 100 times better in the second half of that game? Yeah. Uh, uh, what what did you think? Do you think he's been stubborn? Do you think he's what what? Why do you think he's doing it? Well, look, I think stubborn is a bit of a glib way of um, of kind of describing it, really, because he explained his his decision quite clearly afterwards. He said, "You know, I know we create more chances when we play with the die four at the back and the diamond in midfield, uh, but we lack balance." And so, what he's really worried about is the amount of chances that United are conceding when he's playing four at the back. And uh, I guess part of it is that he thinks that Carrick is not going to do the the uh, the kind of defensive midfield job on his own needs some support in there may or may not be true and also he's worried about his central defenders in a two rather than a three he just wants the extra protection so um crisis mode uh yeah probably still when he's playing through at the back um but it says just as much about his trust for his defenders i think i don't think he trusts any of them at all probably with good reason you know for fitness and quality reasons so that's why he's sticking with 352 he thinks he's got more chance of winning games if he's uh, defensively sound, then if it's an open game. You know, with the amount of attacking talent United have got, you've got to question that, though, haven't you? You've got to think we'd outscore quite a lot of teams if they were unleashed, and at the, the moment they're not, and it, it means that an awful lot of United's play is extremely ponderous, and uh, we're not able to, to even quicken up the passing, let alone quicken up the tempo of the game. So I'm not sure it's stubborn. I think he believes in this, but it's not working, is it? Because... 
you know, defeat to Southampton and then 45 minutes of utter dross against QPR. I mean, that was poor. I think I described it as poo when I was texting you, which I thought was extremely mature of me. <laughs> uh, but much, much better in the second half, of course. Yeah, I think I've got a few different thoughts on that. One, I think he trusts Rocco. Because if you look at all the back fours, basically, pretty much all of them have got Rocco in them. So I think he's the defensive exception to the rule in terms of trust. Another thing is that uh, Greg Johnson of Squawker wrote a really interesting thing about how the players might all be recovering from their World Cup hangover. But it's entirely possible that Van Gaal isn't. And that actually, Van Gaal's just tired you know, and that's one of the reasons that his decision making isn't as perhaps as, as sharp as it should be, because he hasn't had a break for ages and he's been thrusting at the deep end. I'm not sure I'm going to buy that, but, you know, hey. Because, you know, mental exhaustion is, you've all, if you concentrate for an hour, it's extremely tiring. You know what I mean? It's a, sure. it's a, a tiring thing. I'm not saying it's the only factor, but I thought it was quite a, a specific and interesting factor. Um, Di Maria was pretty terrible for the whole game against QPR, but he was definitely better after he was used in a position that he's more effective in. Playing up front and Rooney playing in midfield. Not that I think that Rooney would be a particularly good link player in the 3-5-2 as the kind of second link striker or whatever. I don't think he would particularly suit that. But still, you'd think that at least then Di Maria would be playing in his right position. It seemed genuinely quite a bizarre decision. Yeah. At the moment, Van Hal is finding it very difficult to get the best out of any of his attacking players. I mean, Falcao worked hard against QPR. I wouldn't say he really produced much. A one laughable miss went about two yards in front of goal ish. Well, no, it wasn't. It wasn't a laughable miss. It looked like a laughable miss until you see the replay and it was taken off his foot by Corker, basically. Yeah, whatever. He should be moving quicker towards the ball, which is another question mark about Falcao, of course. A little bit ponderous at the moment. The wider point I was trying to make about the attacking players, he's not getting much out of Di Maria at the moment. I mean, he's playing him in the wrong position, I'd suggest. He's not getting much out of Mata. Very, very quiet against QPR. And he's not getting a lot out of Rooney. I mean, Rooney did all right. I mean, he was at the heart of many things, was he? You know, he's probably the most involved of any United player in the in the midfield. But it's been a long time since we've been singing Rooney's praises, and he does it all right in central midfield. Is he ever going to make a world class central midfielder? I'm not sure he is. I'm sure he isn't. It would be a huge long shot, right, to think that he's going to suddenly become a proper expert at that position. I think he's been absolutely terrible for about three games now maybe it's only two games but it feels it feels like a a long time so 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 bad against QPR but anyway the thing was you know he got on the ball a lot anytime he got into the attacking third it felt like he gave it away I don't know exactly how many misplaced passes there were from Rooney in the attacking third but it was a lot I did see one stat that was going around United misplaced more passes in the game against QPR than any other team has done in any other game this Premier League season Rooney made 18 of his 33 passes in the attacking third which uh, I'm no mathematician but that means basically half the time he had the ball in the attacking third he gave it away well there's one solution to that don't have him in the attacking third (laughs) or attacking or in the team <laughs> the balance of the side was was all off uh, Rooney's out of form again 
probably something in something of a strop because he's being forced to actually be a midfielder now and and as we know he likes that for a couple of games and then he gets fed up and because he's playing really badly the captaincy thing then goes a bit awry which is a shame because I felt like he was doing a, a pretty good job of that and he's not done anything egregious in that department but yeah he's had he's had two really bad games in a row Falcao at least you know he had that chance two chances the header which Green did well to save and then the shot at the near post which maybe he could have done with being more artful than just kind of blasting it at Green um and and I I think there's absolutely no blame attached to him whatsoever for the chance that he missed in front of the open goal I, I don't think being quicker to get there would have made any difference um talking of quick it did change the game did change when uh Van Gaal made his substitutions. He brought on big and he brought on quick. It was pretty uh, pretty back-to-basic stuff. Something which you were calling for, actually. Uh, you texted me saying we'd just be better kind of getting right back to basics. And, and it did. Yeah, I, I didn't quite mean lump it. <laughs> no, I know. Man, but, uh, I mean, I, look, um, if you just stripped away all the uh, all the, the tactical nuance that Van Gaal is trying to uh, get into his side, the philosophy, and, and just went back to a straight 4-4-2. I'm not saying that's the formation that will will win United the league or anything like that. But in that particular game, when it was a complete mess for 45 minutes, uh, that would have solved a lot of problems just for then. Uh, which is not far off what United did in the second half. Not quite, but... Close, yeah. Uh, yeah, close. Went to yeah much more traditional formation and, and it worked for a while. I mean, you know, I'm not saying United have got the best squad in the league, right? Or, or the, even the best 11, but there's a lot of talent there. Some definite problems, but a lot of talent. And it's beginning to feel that Van Gaal is not getting the full sum of all the parts. And I don't know whether that's true or not, but, you know, if, if the if this narrative around the comparing Moyes and Van Gaal's points, you know, has anything to it, and, and, you know, it's hard to compare across seasons and unfair, of course, then you start asking some questions. You know, where did that you know, £150 million spent and some 120-odd million net um, actually go you know has it improved the team as much as we it should have done where does Van Gaal go from here why is he not getting as much criticism as as Moyes did last season or perhaps he you know a better better way of putting that or perhaps that he should or scrutiny at least and you know all these things are I think are valid given uh, United's progress today and and the, the real kicker is even if you don't buy the comparison of points totals across seasons it's probably true that United are fourth only because of how bad Arsenal and Liverpool have been for much of this season. You know, if they uh, if they hadn't really seemed to drop off, then it might look a lot worse for Van Gaal. Yeah, and losing to Southampton was crucial because if we'd won or even drawn that game, we'd be third now and that is a lot more comfortable, isn't it? Because Arsenal just beaten City and come back into form and all this kind of thing. I mean, you asked a ton of questions there and I think, first of all, Van Gaal is getting a lot of criticism. It's it's been slow to arrive, but it's arrived in a deluge. I I I tweeted something positive about Van Gaal ahead of the QPR game, but after the team had been announced, and my mentions were just absolute wash. There are there are you know people fully committed to calling him a fraud and a charlatan and a failure and all of these kinds of things already. And I just think you know there was a very specific reason why I was very happy that United acted quickly on Moyes. You didn't like him because he was ginger and Scottish? No, that's neither of those things are the reason. <laughs> the truth of the matter is, during when it was all going a bit Moyes out, and I was like, 
is this right? Am I just being impatient? Is this? Am I just? Am I joining the throngs of the ridiculousness of modern football? But I, I went back and I watched a video of Alex Ferguson in 1986 being interviewed about United, and I, I asked my conscience with a kind of you know honest assessment, would this man have convinced you more than Moyes did? And the answer was like yes, a million times yes. And it's the same with Van Gaal. Like Fergie very much didn't get things right straight away, and Van Gaal is not getting things right. This is this is not to say that he doesn't warrant criticism and scrutiny because he very much warrants both of those things. But when somebody is a serial winner, you back them. You back them for multiple seasons. The reason Moyes never should have been backed for multiple seasons is because he should never have been anywhere near the job in the first place and you simply cannot say that about Van Gaal no that's fine but um you know then we come back to this debate about just just buying into it and it's a piece of faith right oh so, yeah absolutely and, and and it is because the evidence that isn't there to kind of support what he's doing I mean one of, one of the things that's beginning to frustrate of course is the amount of sort of players played out of position you know square pegs and round holes and the the fact that there seems to be this kind of faith that 352 is going to work for United and it just doesn't or, or nuances around that and it just doesn't seem to do that for either for the team or players you know you, you look at the team against QPR and and De Gea and the back three you'd say might be playing in their natural positions although I'm not sure that uh, Evans or Jones have played in the back three very often Carrick is the deep line midfielder that's about his natural position uh, and then Falcao up front everyone else is in the wrong role for them or at least the one that they're not almost familiar with so there's an awful lot of square pegs in that team and and then you ask yourself is that a bit dysfunctional because of that as well as the 3-5-2 system which doesn't appear to have worked for United this season and that's absolutely the case because it was like a classic Fergie game you know when he went crazy and started just playing players out of position all the time and and you would see the team sheet and you would know what was coming and then in the end would probably win and that's what happened this time as well uh, it was really a very frustrating game it was heartening to to see him switch the system another lovely bright spot was the goals and obviously they were they were both good goals uh, Fellaini's goal he started the move by kind of a long bomb upfield he caught it on his chest he did, out on the the flanks he does a, a beautiful piece of chest control where it's like like another player would use his first touch to take the ball away from the defender but he gets the ball under control and takes it away from the defender to give him space to do the pass with Fellaini's absolutely magic chest and he, he took his goal well of course he should just play football on his knees because he'd get the ball in his chest much because he's <laughs> phenomenal he's the world's best chester <laughs> of the ball and I, I mean the difference in quality of touch of Fellaini's chest versus his foot is is miles it's divisions apart it's not even the same sport um, but he took his goal very well gotta say you know fine sort of toe poked finish caught it very cleanly in a, a fine goal fine second goal as well so you know obvious to say but the two brightest points of the game by a long way those two goals and, and nice to see Wilson I mean that it felt like real natural goal scorer's instinct didn't it bursting through first shot save second shot beautiful finish yeah absolutely and uh Van Gaal's taken a lot of criticism for his substitution and I think Aston Villa's substitutions and tinkering really killed our performance very similar against Southampton but both his subs scored the goals in the QPR game so you've got to 
give him some credit for that probably Wilson uh, an absolute bright spot and yeah fantastic to see him and it's too early to say he needed that goal but it's going to do him no harm at all to have got it is it because he's he's featured quite a lot and he's done an awful lot of very useful running but it hasn't been end producty so far this season and it was fantastic to see that so it was great stuff yeah I think that's true actually I mean it was something like 12 games this season before scoring so that does begin to feel like a very long time and he's he's an actual anyone who's seen a lot of him at under 21 and youth level know that he is a natural goal scorer he should be scoring more goals this is not someone who's got an all-round game and doesn't score many like uh, I don't know Welbeck or something like that this is a player who ought to score a lot of goals through his career and his pace causes a lot of trouble so good to see hope he goes on from there he's obviously got to make some adjustments to his game playing at Premier League level the movement uh, needs to be subtler I think he runs into channels in quite an obvious fashion sometimes but he'll get there I'm, I'm have a lot of faith in this kid and uh, it seems that Van Hal does too that's great one question I had and you know, when we talk about question of faith Van Hal have faith in his creative players so kind of kept popped up in my mind because he sold Kagawa I'm not sure he fully trusts Mata I mean he substitutes him a lot I know he, he started 10 straight games or something like that before this one but he, he comes off a lot Rooney is he I don't know if he's a creative player but he's he's certainly not playing in a position that's normal to him and Nanyanzai hasn't featured at all Herrera barely features at all it's beginning to feel that uh, Van Gaal the pragmatist uh, would prefer sort of bodies in there and physicality than the touch players yeah uh, which is a, all a bit of a shame really because I feel like we've got a squad that leans heavily in the other direction haven't we um, Yanazai it was nice to see Fellaini running up and hugging Yanazai after he scored. That was a quite pointed moment, I thought, really. And then Herrera brought on as the sub to uh, to waste a bit of time when we were 2-0 up. That was weird. And unless When he did that with Paddy McNair, it felt like a genuine vote of confidence. This felt like he was just taking a mickey out of Herrera. <laughs> there are these rumours that Herrera was late for training a couple of times early in Van Gaal's time in charge and he really didn't like it and that was why he was out for such a long period of time after even after he was back fit whatever's happening there I don't understand it because to me that midfield balance even if you just take out Rooney and put Herrera or you know or player I actually like so take out Mata and and put Herrera in there you've instantly got a better balance right because he can do the defensive work too and etc instantly yeah it, it doesn't make a lot of sense i mean maybe he was late for sh- training because he was shagging van Hal's daughter or wife or both of them i don't know i mean it feels a bit petty doesn't it because it feels like a, if that's the case feels too petty because i think he'd add a lot to the team at the moment yeah it's harder to make the case for because he's not really done much off the bench this season, but he's barely had any time off the bench either, which says a lot too. It's a real shame, and it doesn't uh, seem that there's any obvious loan move coming up either. It got lost in a, a lot of furore around Falcao not making the squad, but Yanzai didn't make the bench for the Southampton game either. And so, you know, it's 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 gone from not getting any game time to not even being in the squad because under-21 football is going to do nothing for him at all, nothing. It's really interesting. I was looking back at the, the season and, and the one time Yanazai was a, it's even strong to call him a regular, but there was a three-game run where he played basically a 4-3-3 or even a four-game run where he played a 4-3-3. It was West Brom, some variation that you could call a 4-3-3, let's say. West Brom, Chelsea, City, Crystal Palace. I think Yanazai played in all of those games games and I don't think he was very good in any of them but honestly it's like you could hardly even blame him because that was at the absolute height of Van Persie not running around 
you know, and Di Maria was on the other flank just constantly running with the ball and not passing, you know, and, and Yamazai is this kid and he's had this great breakthrough season, he's trying to prove himself, so every time he gets the ball in a, in a half shooting position, he's shooting, I mean, the amount of times this season that kid has made the wrong decision with the ball, and you can blame him for that, but it's also really understandable when he's trying so hard to prove himself that there's something not gone right in the management there. Yeah, it's a real shame because the kid's obviously got a phenomenal amount of talent. I uh, ended up having several arguments with people on Twitter when um, complaining about Yanazai's lack of game against Yeovil. I mean, it seemed like a perfect game for him to, to have some time, didn't it? And uh, an awful lot of people ready to write the kid off already. I think that's nonsense. I think he's the best attacking talent that's come out of United in five, maybe ten years, uh, in fact. So, you know, if, if we're going to count that as an academy player, we did steal him from another team when he was 16, but, you know, we can sort of count that-ish. And so uh, I think it's a real shame that he's uh, not moving on from last season. Phenomenal first season in the team. Um, he's got loads and loads of talent and he would be a massive asset to United if Van Gaal can get the best out of him and get him in the team. And it's another one where like this thing of faith comes into it. And I I know six months might seem a lot a long time, but the six months that it has been, it's flown by, right, this season. it's It's been a quick season uh, so far. My experience of it's been pretty quick. And given the sheer number of injuries, it's like you can't use it as an excuse forever. But it's like when a new government comes in, right, and, and says and people attack them and they go look we have a massive mess to clear up that the last government made and everyone goes oh that's typical politicians just always blaming the last lot but sometimes it's true you know this country is currently massively suffering because of policies that mrs thatcher put in place and ted eath and you know some decisions labor governments have made too it, it these things are generational and van gaal's come into a squad that was completely destroyed Bought in a bunch of players, some of whom were his choice and some of whom were opportunistic and the whole mishmash. He's got this unbalanced but incredibly uber-talented squad. And then they all start dropping like flies and he's got to patch it together and stick it together with glue and it's not quite working. And I feel like there are so many mitigating circumstances that it doesn't excuse everything that's going wrong, but it is the background to what's going wrong. Yeah, that's fair enough, yes. Um He's got no injuries now, though, so there are very few excuses. And uh, hopefully United will head to Cambridge United in the FA Cup on Friday and, and smash them, because that's exactly what United should do. We'll probably play 3-5-2, though. Anyway, well, look, we should come on to a preview of that game in a, in a little bit, because uh, there's, there's some other stuff that's happened in between um, us last talking. There, there is, but you just took the point I made and made the exact opposite point, where I was like saying that the, it's the, the injury crisis might be over but the impact of the injury crisis isn't over because he doesn't know the players working as a collective yet you know because he's never had them all together at once yeah but that doesn't explain the bonkers system that he's uh ramming down everyone's throat <laughs> does it i'm not not having that. no it yeah. doesn't um when ashley young <laughs> is your only injury and everyone's wailing because ashley young's out which what van hal was doing on friday <laughs> <And> <laughs> To be fair, he is the one that makes three five two work. So. <laughs> yeah. So uh, before we get on to preview the Cambridge game, there's been a, a lot of Manchester United news in the last week, and we've covered this 
sort of thing happening at other clubs and we're obviously going to cover it happening at our club a very 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 unfortunate situation occurred uh, where one of Manchester United scouts has been sacked for making racial comments racially charged let's just say racist comments on his Facebook page according to the Guardian he claimed that whilst it was his Facebook page some of the comments that had been made had been hacked and put there by someone who didn't like him or didn't like Manchester United yes this is Torben Eggjar who does some European scouting um, called uh, Eastern European people shit and should be kept out uh, of the country and and uh, lots of stuff along those lines there was some islamophobia in there too so um l- let's uh, let's let's not believe any of this nonsense his facebook page was not hacked was it uh, these were his comments and united did the right thing doesn't half bring a, a question into my mind though if a player had said that if say um Angel Di Maria decided to put that all over his Facebook page. How would United react? I mean, this is the the interesting question, isn't it? Because it's easy to do it with a scout because they're very replaceable. Incidentally, right, the one thing I would say about this, which is not the key point because the key points are much more complex than this. If you're going to be a scout, if you're going to hire a scout, make sure they're not massively prejudiced against certain type of people. Because that's a terrible thing. It definitely makes you a worse human. But there are jobs where that's not going to negatively affect your job performance. Like, say, accounting or something, where there's no human contact. But if you're really prejudiced against certain type of people, you shouldn't be the one in charge of recommending whether certain people get looked at or not. You know what I mean? It's like such a such a bad quality for a scout. Yes. I'm not quite sure who hired the chap, but uh, he's out of here, which is a very good thing. And United acted very swiftly, so the Guardian apparently uncovered the comments, yeah. uh, put it to United. They convened a panel within a couple of hours and sacked the chap summarily, which is, uh, which is you know, rapidly acted. But um, I have to say, my cynicism about the world of football stretches to the United boardroom. And I think if this was a player, and, and uh, thankfully none of the United players have done this, um, that we'd have had a very different reaction. But what's interesting is if you think about it as a precedent, now when there is a player that does it, or if there is a player that did similar, they've made it very clear where they stand on this stuff. You know, they're, they're going to look like hypocrites of the worst kind. If yeah. they... And of course, you know, we're debating a hypothetical. Uh, I, I hope uh, Manchester United players are... Um, you know, much, much better people than this chap who's uh, United have done the right thing and fired him and, you know, disassociated themselves from him very quickly. Will that have wrecked United's January transfer window planning? Will that £57 million bid for Mats Hummels or whomever not be going in now because our scout is no longer there to broker the deal? Probably not. Van Gaal's been pretty clear that the... uh... The club are not interested in making big, splashy signings this transfer window. Although, apparently, there was a transfer summit. Is this why David Cameron was in Washington? Is this for Manchester United's transfer summit? Yes. Yes, uh, they were getting Prez Obama on the phone uh, to call up Barcelona and say, we'd like Leo Messi, please, for, you know, 12 packets of fags and, <laughs> and some good old, you know, British exports. And some... Yeah, yeah, that could work. Uh, It's not going to work, is it? But yeah, I mean, I I don't know anything at all about what is really going on behind the scenes. We're constantly being linked with players, of course, because it's January and we're mostly being linked with defenders, even though our defence never actually concedes any goals. I'm not saying we don't need defenders, but, you know. But yeah, it's got to the point where I basically don't think anyone's coming at all. 
but that's not really based on anything. Well, we'll see. In the final, final copy of Red Issue, and I thought we should talk about this, they uh, they hinted that there was some activity happening. And uh, well, one thing Red Issue has been very good over the years, Richard Kurt has sort of been on the front line, um, dig into the, the, into the stories and, and managed to get many, many scoops. And uh, that will no longer be the case because Red Issue has closed. Yeah, you said on your Twitter account they were big inspiration behind the start of United Run. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, was, I was actually going to write a piece about Red Issue for the blog, but then I've been so busy I never actually found time. And now it's too late, but uh, I can talk about them on the uh, the podcast. Yeah, I mean, uh, an inspiration because this is entirely fan-driven content. Um, some of it, the editorial was very high quality over the years, some not quite so high quality. Um, very uh, mixed bunch of stuff in Red Issue uh, between the puerile and cutting-edge journalism. And uh, But it's been an essential part of fandom, I think, at United for a very long time. They've, uh, in a way, kept the club honest by challenging the the business practices of United and challenging the manager on many occasions, digging into player behaviour, digging into the the real stories behind the headlines. And, uh, you know, it's it's a sad day when that comes to an end. And in the editorial, in the final copy, they, they said that uh, football is the bullshit industry and they can't take the stench any longer, which is, you know, not that far from the editorial line that we uh, or you predicted would be the case when we spoke about it uh, a little while before. When they said, you know, it was nothing to do with money and that it was a going concern, it was a question of principles, you know, I, I have very mixed feelings about them. I'm sure that, I'm sure they would not care a damn about that uh, piece of information. I think the fact that they, they thought that there was no way they could actually keep the club honest is probably at the heart of why that editorial read the way it did. I mean, you know, of course they took to task the type of fans that come to Old Trafford and, you know, it's one thing you, you can't say about Red Issue is that they're not tribal. They're tribal in a very specific way. But yeah, loads and loads of people will miss them. I'm sure you uh, don't like the tone of many of their articles, especially when it comes to scouts. Um, and uh, others and and you know certainly they've been on the edge in terms of humor for for many many years i mean they ran the uh the luis suarez um uh, kkk uh back page a little while back that uh, got copies seized by the police uh, fairly illegally which was right on the edge of good taste Funnily enough, shortly before that, I'd said, I'm thinking of running this in uh, United Rant, which was uh, almost exactly the same. And you were like, I don't like that. <laughs> I mean, you say it's on the edge of good taste. I, I think Red Issue would gleefully, uh, happily acknowledge that they were way, way over the edge of good taste. But that that was, they were comfortable with that. And, and I think, you know, in fact, it's weirdly timely because issues of free speech and, and taste and respect and offence are all at the the height of the thing. I mean, people involved with Red Issue have done some specific stuff that's been nasty to people I care about, and that's always a shame. But life is not black and white, um, and they also stood for some things that are very important. My own personal take on it is they also stood for some things which actually aren't important, but some people value those types of things very highly. And the one thing you have to say is that it's a very principled decision they've made. They've just gone, we don't want to be involved with this anymore. We no longer feel that our voice is positively affecting this whole situation. So we're out. You know, there's nothing that can be done. Football's dead. Um, We're just going to stop 
doing it and actually that particular thing I can really relate to because spending so much time talking about writing about thinking about Manchester United it gets pretty soul destroying because of how soulless they are as an entity you know yeah well completely and uh, I mean you know I know we both feel the same way I guess uh, the uh, outtake from that is to carry on talking about things we like which is the actual football when we like when we like the actual football <laughs> and that's not very much over the last 18 months or so but everything outside of it can you know i have to say i completely agree with the editorial line in in red issue you know this is a a cynical industry uh, uh, and the, this uh, club is run by the most cynical of capitalist carpetbaggers who are in it entirely for their own profit and uh, sadly there are many many fans who don't see beyond the um beyond the uh, the spending the recent spending and think suddenly everything's great and uh, you know the world of football's brilliant again and uh, you know red issue took that to task as if having a good transfer window was equal to a trophy that we <laughs> used to enjoy and uh, you know i and i completely see that right because there are now you know far fewer people complaining about the glazers because uh, they release some of manchester united's own money to buy players for Manchester United, wow, aren't they wonderful people after screwing the fans and everyone else for the last 10 years. But And then there's the rest of the, the industry, you know, the cynical marketing, the globalisation, the support for racists and murderers and rapists and, and all of that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, treating fans not as an important part of a important community resource, but cynically as a customer to be milked for every last dollar. And, uh, you know, so I, I kind of understand exactly where they're coming from because football is nothing like it used to be when Red Issue started in 1989. I've still got issue one of Red Issue. And uh, it won't surprise you to learn the, the quality of the um, juvenile humour that was in issue one as well. But football is nothing like it, even if Red Issue tried to do the same thing for the last 26 years. That's the bit of the spirit of Red Issue that resonates with me deeply. The thing in that editorial that kind of illustrates the bit that I don't like, and again, like, they they wouldn't couldn't you know care less about that and and rightly so but the bit that i didn't like is the sneering attitude towards the people that come to old trafford that aren't that don't belong to the this is what football fans should be like and then like you know they talk about selfie sticks and half and half scarves and all that stuff is very obvious and i'm sure deeply frustrating to people who are kind of passionately involved with the club to see people who are less passionately involved at the game especially when it becomes an issue of like the people who are passionately involved can't go and the only people that can go now are let's just say half and half scarf wearing people but I mean that as a shorthand you know they also said like it's full of happy clappy families and I'm like oh yes terrible when families enjoy doing things together isn't it you know and again like you know I know what they mean but there's a sneering tone towards the actual people that come that's like well there is actually room for both kinds of fans but the problem is only one kind of fan is being catered for well yeah and I think I I suspect that behind that headline and I I get what you you mean there I, I think I suspect it's the the frustration at the loss of what football once was right where it was mostly affordable it was mostly you know, a similar bunch of guys who went every week and stood on the terraces and enjoyed their team winning and losing. And now it's not that at all. It's now 60 quid for a ticket to sit where some half and half wearing guy with a selfie stick and an iPad, you know, watches along and has probably never been to Old Trafford before, you know, and, and that's perfectly legitimate for 
those people to go and do that as a form of entertainment of course you know i said earlier in this pod i go around the world quite a bit and i go to a, a game of whatever sport i can find when i'm in town because you know i like sport and people like doing that in manchester united are a big draw around the world so you know completely understand but yeah the the club markets it to that demographic because you know that's that's uh, what generates eyeballs for their global sponsorship they want to globalize because uh, that's you know they're a media company now aren't they not a football team and that's how it generates the most cash so the glazers can go and sell off more of their stock on new york exchange which they've done again recently uh, and pocket all the cash there you go you know it's as cynical as it gets and that bit of it is entirely cynical but the human experience of the people there isn't cynical necessarily and of course it is for some people and it's very ridiculous when you see someone filming an entire match just on their iPad, just like it is when you go to a concert and everyone's got their phones out filming. You think, just like you're gonna, what you're doing here is getting yourself a, a terribly low quality copy of this event, you know, which would be available in a much higher quality form elsewhere, you know. But anyway, that part of it's ridiculous. But the absolute joy in the faces of people that have travelled all the way around the world to come to Old Trafford and can't believe that they're there. And and the, the the thousands of people listening to this podcast who would absolutely love to go to Old Trafford and care deeply about United. Absolutely, yeah. No, and, and you know, I completely get it. And, and actually half our audience is uh, uh, people from overseas, which just tells you something about the nature of Manchester United. It's a global institution and, and loved by many people around the world, but it's just a very different one, you know. I, you know, I'll tell you what, I um I I think the guys at Ready Shoes should go away and think about it and maybe maybe they'll feel differently after they've not done it for a while. Maybe they won't. I, I rather suspect they should go and get themselves a tub of cookie dough ice cream and stick some Taylor Swift CDs on and maybe it'll all be okay again. <laughs> Um, I I, I thought that there was a painful irony to our performance against Southampton, which was very much like the kind of mediocrity that Red Issue would rail against. Well, it was was the kind of mediocrity we had in 1989 when they started, of course. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Anyway, uh, RIP Red Issue. Grief, grief, grief. Oof, oof. Should we hold a minute of silence for them? (laughs) Yeah, let's... um... Anyway, uh, so um, the other news, given how upset that Red Issue were that people said that we had a good transfer window last time around, uh, is the transfer window so far a good one in that since we last spoke, we have in fact given a contract to someone who I'm pretty sure would be in the top five best goalkeepers in the Premier League just to sit on our bench for a laugh. Yeah, Victor Valdez. Um, I mean, he's got he's such a storied career. He's he's won like fifteen trophies with Barcelona, and um, Van Hal, of course, gave him his debut as a Barcelona keeper. He's he's had a brilliant career at Barcelona. I mean, he's always had his critics because um, the things that he's weakest at are the things that he rarely had to do in in you know at Barcelona, which was have a physical presence around the box, and which of course is the exact thing that will get tested if and when he plays for Manchester United, which he could well do against Cambridge, of course. But it's amazing, really, that and it says something for him and where he thinks he's at in his career that he's actually accepted an offer because this is, you know, David De Gea has been outstanding for the last two years in his way and it would take a lot to shift him, you'd think. So it says that. And then, then the other side of it is that 
Well, what does this mean about David De Gea? Is uh, you know, has David De Gea given the signal that he's unlikely to be signing a new contract? Well, what do you think? Because obviously, like today's papers on Sundays, we record this, are, are full of De Gea to Real as a, as like as if it's a real thing. What's your take on the whole situation? Yeah, I'd say uh, I'd say uh, on the balance of probabilities, I think that's probably likely. I think. Uh, it may well be that they're finally sick of Casillas. I think De Gea's got to add up a bunch of things. You know, one is I think he'd like to be back in Spain. His girlfriend's still there, you know, fronting a TV show as, as well as doing the pop records. Uh, you know, and those two are regularly on Instagram communicating their, you know, deep love for each other and all of that stuff. Sounding like a cynic now, aren't I? And Real Madrid is a, a big calling for any player, especially those of, of Spanish birth. I know he played for Atletico, but I think we discussed this a couple of years ago. You know, he's not a he's not a necessarily a core hardcore Atletico fan. Not not from the inner cities, from the suburbs. So um, I don't think it'd be a problem for him to go to Real Madrid. And the fact that he's not signed the contract, I'm not sure even one's been publicly offered yet says an awful lot you know when you've got a keeper or a player who's amongst the very best in his position in the world and 18 months or less than 18 months until his deal runs out and nothing's been done you've got to be worried yeah absolutely and it would be a big 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 blow to lose the hair and I don't want to lose the hair that would you know I'd be very sad it would be a real shame but I'd rather we had Valdez there if that is going to happen than Lindegaard you know, because at least we've got a competent goalkeeper as a backup. Oh, yeah, completely. I mean, look, in this season when De Gea's probably saved United, you know, seven or eight points or something. More, maybe. Yeah, right. You know, maybe Valdez wouldn't do the same quality of job there. But this is not United uh, losing Schmeichel and replacing him with Bosnich and Taibi. Right? And uh, no, Barthez came after that. But, you know, it's a high quality goalkeeper. So if De Gea does go in the summer. Uh, Valdez will have had six months to, to sort his life out in Manchester and, and he'd be a ready-made replacement and a very high-quality one, of course, you know. Uh, but it would still be, you know, United degrading a position, for sure. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because basically anyone would be United degrading a position after De Gea because he's really, really special. Valdez, it's worth pointing out, an extraordinarily handsome gentleman to add to the many extraordinarily handsome gentlemen currently at United. Uh, it's not a particular interest, but it's worth pointing out at some point. I don't know if this is a genuine marketing strategy or not, but we could put together some pretty functional boy bands out of the people that are at Manchester United. Come on, give, give us your, your five-man boy well, band Well, obviously you have to have Daily Blint in it. I mean, come on. Um, and Valdez straight in there. Falcao, I think, very clearly in there. And then, so I think those those three are in a kind of standout class. And then the rest of them, it's a slightly more complicated thing. I think, you know, you maybe get Ashley Young in there. And, uh, and maybe you could have De, De Maria as a slightly funny looking songwriter one. Mm, I don't know about that. He's a, he's a bit, you know. He's a bit funny looking, isn't he? Exactly, but you know that's it's fine if he write he can write the songs. You're trying to say that Wazza wouldn't get in there. <laughs> Maybe he would. Maybe he would. I'm no. Well, but Wan Mata looks like your your songwriting cutesy one. Yeah, he? obviously. Sorry. Yeah, how could I possibly have forgotten? And and to be honest, like you could even go with a two goalkeeper thing because both Lindegaard and De Gea would be in with a shout in the boy band. There you go. Yeah, it's got to the point where I think we could put together two. Anyway. 
Let's uh, let's move swiftly on. I, I I gather you've been thinking about this deeply, Paul. No, this is the first time I've thought is about it. Is it your love of boy band or your love of sweaty men <laughs> that is the the driving force? Why, why do I have to choose? Well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> we're we're open minded on this show, so um, if you're a sweaty male in a boy band or would like to be send your photo to paul at unitedrant.co.uk that's unnecessary but you know whatever i'll forward it on to pete waterman very good is he is, is he still probably i'm not sure he might he might be dead but uh, Sam, simon cowell is still around there we go that's the one uh, someone who is not going to be getting into a boy band uh, anytime soon or never in his life is luke chadwick who is still playing for cambridge united uh, has not played very much recently but he is in their squad, and after uh, many, many years with uh, MK Dons, and, and that's who United will be playing this Friday in the FA Cup. What do you think about this? So go on then, Ed, tell me everything you know about Cambridge United, and and none of it can include information about John Beck. Yeah, that's about all I know. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Did you know when John Beck was uh, Cambridge United manager, he used to grow the grass taller in the corners and put sand there? I, I did know that, as did everyone who listened to the Rankcast before the Yeovil episode. So what do we know about Cambridge? Well, they, they still play at the Abbey Stadium. Uh, they have ju- they got promoted last season from the conference in the playoffs. So they are in League Two. Richard Mooney is their manager. He's been around the, the houses a little bit, Richard Mooney, but he's well, you know, he's well known. He's coached at a decent level. Luke Chadwick is in their squad. I know none of their players apart from Luke Chadwick, but they do have a player called Harrison Dunk. And, you know, he's got to be good because that's a great name. It, it is. It is a very good name. So how are they doing in League Two at the moment? Well, they're mid-table at the moment, just above AFC Wimbledon. Uh, so they're doing all right. And they won 4-0 against Newport the other night. So, you know, warming up nicely for the United game. Yeah, one of the things that's notable about their performance this season, they've got a pretty good goal difference compared to the teams around them. They've scored a lot of goals. They've scored more goals than you have to go all the way up to uh, top of the table Wickham to find a team that scored more goals in League One so far this season than Cambridge United. So our shaky defence might be tested somewhat. Yeah, very good. I mean, it's going to be uh, a cracking atmosphere under the lights on Friday night 10,000 fans I'm sure there'll be a you know a full United support as always uh, I'm looking forward to it I mean, you wait years and years for United to have an away game at a lower league club and two come along at once yeah absolutely and Friday night lights of course means that we could make loads of Tim Riggins references which I'll be doing throughout the game on my Twitter feed at UTD Rankcast very good so uh, do you have a prediction for this game United going to smash the U's uh, what I really want to happen in this game is for us to play a formation that isn't 3-5-2 and I, I, I don't say that as a kind of from a Luddite perspective, I, I like it that I kind of like the fact that we've even tried to play a back three, but it's been so desperately ineffective that it's not so much that I don't want us to play the formation. I just don't want to play the formation if it means sticking a load of our best players in positions where we can't get the best out of them. So, yeah, I, I, I think my prediction is going to be a 3-1 win to United because we go with a diamond formation, a bit more of attacking thing. Well, one thing I would like to ask your take on is is how many of the fringe players do you think he'll give a game to? A few. I mean, he made six changes from the Stoke game to the Oval game 
if I remember correctly. So I think it'll be that kind of number of changes. So it would be sensible to play some of the players who need some minutes, of course, you know, Di Maria and Herrera and Falcao, and they probably need some minutes. And a few of the defenders do too. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's starting to get to the point where Van Gaal can't make excuses about lack of fitness, match fitness, once they get a few more, more minutes. And Hopefully Wilson starts the game. Be nice to see him play again. Hopefully Rooney doesn't play, doesn't need to play. I suppose Fellaini will probably play because he's not played an awful lot recently. And maybe some of the younger kids will get a game. You know, will Blackett and McNair play again? Uh, will Pereira play? Uh, will Yanazai play? It'd be nice to see all of them. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll we'll see what happens with that on Friday night, and then we'll be back to do a podcast after that. We are going to roll over our Falcao competition because we've just not had enough entries. So get your entries into the Falcao competition. It's to win an absolutely lovely painting of Falcao. I think it's the original painting too. I don't think it's a print, but it might be a print. But anyway, it's lovely either way. So yeah, all you need to do is tweet at uh, one of us or both of us, or just tweet using the hashtag RankCast. Um, and it, it may be that one of the entries that's already been submitted will win because there's some been some good entries, but we'd like a few more because uh, we'd like to give a few more people a chance at, at winning this. So just tweet at us with something that you have celebrated as wildly as Falcao celebrates goals. Very good, and that's to win that Falcao painting from mils-art.com. Some very nice stuff there. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so... If you want to get hold of me between now and next week, you can get me at UTD Rantcast on Twitter and you can get Ed at United Rant. And you can get both of us on Facebook.com slash United Rant as more and more people have been doing. So A rather lot of people, in fact. A surprising number of people, given that uh, we say every week we're never on there. So we must be to though to look at the stats. See, this is how vain we are, Paul. We didn't care until people started coming to the Facebook page. Now we care a lot. Like if you if you prefer Facebook to Twitter, um, and you want to put comments about the show or questions and stuff like that, we'll definitely read them and reply and get questions for the show from there and all that kind of thing. Uh, if you don't do social networking at all, but you desperately want to get hold of us, cast at unitedrant.co.uk. What if people on on the internet at all and they want to get... Do they have to send a postcard in, Blue Peter style? Yeah, that could work. I think that's probably as good a way as any. Although, if they aren't on the internet at all, how are they listening to this? iTunes. Phones. <laughs> something. That's That's... Yeah. That's the internet, Ed. I don't know how to break this to you. Talking of iTunes um, and phones, however you listen to the show, uh, you unless you just download the episodes from the website every week, you can definitely subscribe to the show, uh, which would be super helpful to us if you would be so kind as to do that. So you just hit the subscribe button on iTunes or use uh, one of the many podcast softwares that are available out there very good and uh, leave us a review uh, we always like to hear your feedback even if it's just a complain about paul hey <laughs> all right and with that uh, and also uh, another thanks as always to the fantastic producer tom who you can follow on twitter at tej sound t-w-e-j sound Right, and just before we go, uh, head off to our tubs of uh, cookie dough ice cream and uh, pop princesses and a copy of Red Issue, just to read the old ones again and again with a tear running down our cheek. We've got to predict a result for the Cambridge game. I'm going to go for a thumping 3-1 win. Yeah, I think I'll stick with my 3-1. That's my prediction. All right, see you next week.